On this week's show, join host John McElroy and his panel as they examine Cadillac's luxury car comeback with the president of the brand, Johan Denison. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Want to thank you all for tuning in to AutoLine This Week, where today's topic is going to be all about Cadillac. How's that brand doing? We're going to learn because we've got the president of Cadillac joining us today, Johan Denison. Johan, great to have you back on AutoLine This Week. Fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today are John Stoll from the Wall Street Journal and Dave Sullivan from Auto Pacific. Great having the both of you guys here, too. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Johan, we need an update as to what's happening to Cadillac. When I look at the sales, they're okay. They're not all that great, and we'll get into that in a minute. But you're quoted as saying that 2015, from a revenue standpoint, was a killer year for Cadillac. Why do you say that? Well, it must be because it's true. <laughs> um, for me, the issue of uh, taking uh, charge of this fantastic and iconic American luxury brand is as much about shaping the future as it is about creating a solid foundation on which to build for that future. And uh, in that sense, um, the decision by General Motors to really focus on the luxury market now and create dedicated resources and set Cadillac up as a more autonomous business unit um, in many ways brings great responsibility, but also is liberating. Um, it has allowed me the flexibility of taking a global view of the Cadillac business as opposed to the regional fragmentation that um, has characterized it before, where very competent and powerful leaders have had to take charge of the portfolio of GM brands, but within that region. And why this is important for Cadillac is that we wanted to make sure we have this consistency of execution of the whole brand development story, but also recognizing that we have a diverse range of markets where the level of maturity of the brand and the issues that business issues that face it are quite, quite different. And so, uh, for example, in China, the, the, the focus has got to be on very rapid growth and expanding of the footprint. Uh, in the U.S., um, which has really been the mainstay of our focus throughout our history, the challenge is quite different. We have a lot of legacy issues. Um, the brand has been around for, what, uh, 113 years now. And while we do very well in the U.S., um, some of those fundamentals that I, I, I regard as key drivers for our future ambitions, I wanted to strengthen. And so uh, quite different to the situation in China, the focus here has to be on the quality of the business. And since we consolidate now the, the global business for Cadillac, I have that luxury of saying, you know, I don't really care where a dollar comes from. Um, and if the dollar comes from China it, or it comes from the U.S., it still goes into the bank. And that allowed us this opportunity of saying, okay, let's leverage the growth that we're experiencing in China and in Europe and the Middle East and other parts of the world, but let's consolidate our American business. And our aim at the beginning of 2015 was this focus. Let's get the quality right. And if we look through the entire year, um, on a global basis, Cadillac sales grew about 7.5%, so the dollars were coming in. But much more importantly than that, uh, and this is the information that we have, you know, it's not on the sales scoreboard, is the quality of that business. Cadillac was uh, the only luxury brand that actually saw a year-over-year -year decline in incentive spend in 2015. 
We also saw a, a far richer model mix uh, that was uh, enabled by repackaging of some options. So customers could buy individual option requirements as opposed to packaging them all together. If you wanted a sunroof, you could buy one instead of buying it as part of a $10,000 package. Um, we also uh, worked very hard on this discipline in uh, how we go to market. And the net result of all of that was that we saw an escalation of transaction prices at a brand level, uh, something approaching $8,000. Um, and strong drivers of that uh, growth in, in, in average transaction prices came, of course, from Escalade. The new Escalade is an absolutely stunning car and dominates its market segment. But uh, cars like ATS saw transaction prices increase by around $2,000. Um, CTS by around $3,500. And uh, when you want to build cars of that substance and quality, um, you have got to allow your vehicle programs the opportunity to generate the revenue so that the next time around you want to replace them, you can do so with cars of equal, equal quality. If you give the cars away by huge discounts, the next time you discuss a new vehicle program, the finance guys will remind you you made no money. Was that increase in revenue due to, um, lo I mean, lower uh, incentive spend or um, actually, you know, increased content in the vehicle? So it's a combination. combination of both. It's a combination. It's lower incentive spend, lower dealer discounts, and enrichment in model mix. So uh, when they all rolled up, we saw this, uh, this, this rise in the overall water level. And that's why, if, if we look at, at, at the U.S. performance then specifically, sales grew uh, by just shy of 3% during 2015. But uh, with that escalation in transaction prices, together with the growth that we saw from the rest of the world, this answers the question why it was such a stellar year for Cadillac. That's pretty impressive. So sales are okay, but revenue is actually growing faster on a percentage basis than your sales Exactly are. right. Yes, and this trend has maintained itself into uh, 2016 now. First two months of the year, on a global basis, sales are um, at the same level as uh, they were in, um, in 2015. Um, and I might just, as a small detour, say one of the challenges that we face is that uh, there's been a global shift from sedans into the crossover market. Uh, you know, the, the Lux 3 sector that we, we call the segment where the ATS competes with the BMW 3 Series and Mercedes C-Class, that is down um, some 10% globally. globally. And uh, the Lux 4 sector where CTS competes with the 5 Series and E-Class and so on, that's down 15%. Meantime, the crossover segment where we compete with SRX, that has grown 25%. And we have one entry that's at the very end of its life cycle. So uh, as inventory start running down of that vehicle too, so we wait with growing impatience for the arrival of XT5 to really give us that tailwind. Uh, but uh, this also highlights some of the uh, opportunities that we have in the longer term as we broaden out our crossover portfolio to capitalize on the growth opportunities that lie in that sector of the market as well. We, we've seen a, uh, a shift, and in, in, in you've been uh, involved in this uh, through your career, the shift in American consumers gravitating toward German luxury, becoming more interested in it. And yet in China, it seems like American luxury still has pretty long legs. As you look at Cadillac sale, uh, sales reports, growth, 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 growth. How much of Cadillac's future is in China versus being this longtime legacy brand in the United States. I mean, if you look a few years out, I mean, is there a chance that, Ch that even China becomes Cadillac's number one market? 
I think that is still very far into the future. It's not inconceivable, but it's not in the near term. Uh, I, I think you're probably looking 10 years down the road. What I would have to say, though, is that one of the challenges that faces us comes directly as a consequence of our historic, strong U.S.-centric focus. You know, we developed cars that we thought were okay for this market. The same goes for the powertrains, the product concepts, and the categories of, of segments that we entered. And then we kind of looked around the rest of the world who would like to buy these cars. Today, luxury brands are successful only if they are global. And you need that global economy of scale to be able to afford the investment in the product portfolio that Cadillac needs to compete toe-to-toe -to -toe with the market leaders. You know, we cover only about half of the luxury segment today. And there is no way that we could justify the investments from an economic feasibility point of view if we continue to get the lion's share of our business only from the U.S. market. And so as the team and I have planned our, our long-term future product strategy, it has to be done on the basis of going global. And uh, since we're in a hurry to, to get all these new products, China has got to be prioritized in terms of develop, developing it as a second volume hub for the brand. Mm -hmm. That is where we can most quickly grow the volume. This doesn't mean that Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Russia, these are important markets to us as well. Uh, but, you know, you can't declare war on the entire world at the same time. You've got to do it market by market. And uh, in that sense, China right now plays uh, as an important role in our future, as does the domestic market. Johan, I'm interested, too, going back to how you've boosted your profitability. You mentioned you no longer force customers to buy an option package if they want a sunroof, and they have to buy all these other things that maybe they really don't want, and it's $10,000. Elaborate a little bit more, will you, on how you've unbundled these option packages? So, you know, the, the general approach was filled with noble intentions. Um, I think that the team realized that uh, the volumes were always going to be somewhat constrained and in trying to uh, also um, manage production complexity, uh, there was this desire to then uh, bundle the, the options together. The problem that we face is that in the luxury market, the customers really demand a whole lot more flexibility than is perhaps the case in the mainstream market. And in many cases, too, um, this is still something that's under development, but customers even like to specify long before the time which cars they want because they generally lease them. And so they know when they're up for the next car and they have time to place an individualized order. And we've seen how some of the leading uh, contenders in the luxury market have really perfected this to a fine art. Um, and if we want to compete toe-to-toe, -to -toe, then we also have to respond. And uh, it also required, as part of this empowerment of Cadillac, that we were able to sit with uh, our colleagues and the other functions in the company, explain our business case and our rationale why. And I have to say, I enjoy absolutely outstanding support from GM leadership and my peers on the executive leadership team. And so there was immediate uh, acknowledgement of this need. And uh, it would not have been possible to do without the support of the manufacturing guys, because actually the complexity of Cadillac's product portfolio now exceeds the guidelines of General Motors' production complexity. But this is okay. Uh, the payback is clearly there. So that was the first principle. Um, and so we, we um, unbundled some equipment items. So uh, 
technology packages. Um, we took the sunroof was a key one that the dealers had said to us, you've got too much other content going around with it. Many customers then buy a base car without all the uh, additional equipment. And uh, we have by and large uh, unbundled most of our packages so that people can specify individual equipment items. And uh, this has brought the results that uh, the average car leaving the showroom floor is going out with a richer mix. I have to say, though, you know, there's more to it. It's a complex business. It's not just about managing incentives and, 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 and the equipment. It's also about um, managing inventories. Again, uh, we know that in the mainstream market, customers frequently buy on impulse, and dealers as a general business model like to have a wide selection of product on the lot to, to, to show the customers. This is good for the mainstream business. Luxury business is a bit different. Um, if you have very large inventories, then um, the reality is that you end up with a situation where the conversation that the sales manager has with the sales team is not one about maximizing uh, the value chain, but it's about moving metal. This is not how the luxury game is won. Some of the luxury brands that uh, are famous, you know, I don't think uh, Hermes or Rolex are famous because they have a sale every month, yeah. <laughs> right? They have brand cachet. And uh, the conversation I want the salesperson to have when that customer walks in the dealership is to tell him this is your lucky day because I have a fabulous product for you. And let me tell you about the product substance. Let me tell you about the quality. Let me tell you about the technology. Let me tell you how our customer service and the experience at my store is a differentiator and how all of that together represents phenomenal value as opposed to today's your lucky day because I've got a deal for you. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong conversation. Mm -hmm. So when you have all that complexity though, you end up, you may not have that car that, that the customer wants, you know, and, and if it is an impulse, impulse buy or, they decided to come across the street from the Audi dealership to uh, check out a CTS, and they, they don't have that because it's, there's so many variables that you could have on the, and they're not, there's just that one isn't there that they want. You know, what do you have, a, what's the plan in place to kind of uh, uh, be able to have those cars available to dealers to be able to pick from and say, I can have it for you tomorrow, mm. uh, maybe deliver it to your office. Is there something like that that you're working on that? Um, we are indeed. Uh, and uh, this is a phenomenon that's been around for some time. So the way to approach it is you need to have quite sophisticated um, forecasting models to help you to predict demand. And we know from a long experience now which are the popular options. So your first port of call is to kind of, and we go out to, a, to dealers with a recommended order guide based on very robust statistical modeling um, programs, we are able to develop a core of, of offerings which will meet the majority of needs. Those then that fly outside that core but still represent a fairly sizable uh, uh, component, you need quite flexible production systems. So the dealers, they know what their allocation slot is in terms of production birth, uh, and that pretty late in the day, they can still change production orders in terms of color trims and options so that we can have uh, expedited order to delivery. Mm. That is one area that the, the whole organization is working on is this order to delivery time to get that as short as possible. And uh, we have the benefit here, quite candidly, in that we make the majority of our, of our vehicles right here in the U.S. And so we don't have the long you know, transatlantic shipping times or from uh, other parts of the world that many of our competitors do. 
uh, in the luxury space, and I think I'd like to leverage that going forward as well. One, one thing that you've said is that you're, you're, you're going to start reporting out more financials, I believe, in, in the near future. How does that change? How, what's the timetable for that, and how does that change y- your job and just the amount of pressure and the accountability? Obviously, internally, we've seen a pretty uh, dramatic shift in accountability in Mary's team, and it's pretty evident that you guys are holding each other accountable. But now when the analysts and the public and us, we get to pick on you a little bit more if your numbers are here or there. How does that change the pressure on you, um, mm-hmm. if at all? Let me, it, it does. Um, and I'll answer your question this way. We are in no particular rush to unbundle the Cadillac business and go into separate reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is most definitely... Uh, one of the early things that Dan Ammon discussed with me was his desire, and it is precisely for this reason. Uh, as we build out the uh, the Cadillac business and the contribution that it makes to the overall uh, enterprise, uh, so we need to get transparency on the performance of the luxury unit. And you've seen the same way, uh, you know, for example, with Audi reporting out separately from the VW Group. Um, and so that, that is also the longer-term aim. What we need to do to prepare for that day is, one, is in terms of systems. Uh, it has quite, quite profound systems implications in how we, we, we record things. But there's also clearly uh, the need for uh, us to make sure that the overall magnitude of the Cadillac business is such that you can justify separating, separating out that reporting. Otherwise, the, the SEC will look at you with a smile on their face. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no specific timeline. But very clearly, uh, in terms of our overall midterm plan, as we anticipate uh, to be um, approaching on a global basis uh, around the, the half a million mark by, by 2020, mm-hmm. uh, I would estimate that that would well coincide with that point where the overall magnitude of the Cadillac business is of such a nature mm-hmm. that it would require separate reporting and justify it. And to answer your question about the pressure, I have enough pressure without external reporting. <laughs> this I can assure you. Uh, but no doubt, that will ratchet it up a bit more as well. Reporting is one thing, but what about, you know, and this is maybe 15 or 20 years down the road, but what about separating product development and purchasing? Is that, or is that still, you're still going to have to rely on, you know, being part of the GM family for a long time and, you know, sharing engineering with, uh, you know, other, the other brands in the, under GM? You know, Cadillac is in a fantastic situation right now because we have been kind of shepherded together and we have carved off the business so that we can have dedicated mind share and focus on the luxury market. And so we've expanded the team quite a bit and uh, all the key processes as they touch the Cadillac business are now steered by people who have only Cadillac on their mind. Nevertheless, uh, so in many respects, I, I would almost say it's like this. We're like a, a small startup company, and we can be fleet-footed and, and quick in decision-making and do the right things for Cadillac and for the luxury brand consumer, but we have access to massive resources of a Titan car company like General Motors. And uh, whether it's engineering resources or financial resources, it's a fantastic experience for Cadillac to be part of GM, and we're very proud of that. We um, already have the ability, as we cut across the GM functions, um, where there are dedicated people within those functions who wear Cadillac hats, which is also a relatively recent development. 
So, for example, I'll illustrate. Uh, we have a gentleman um, newly appointed to uh, his role, Brandon Vivian. He is the executive director in charge of all engineering for Cadillac. He has a team of engineers working uh, with him um, who do nothing but Cadillac. But in those areas where they need to draw on engineering resources of the broader corporation, so let's say, for example, electronics, there's no point in duplicating everything. You'll just be adding more cost without getting more benefit. So he has somebody in the engineering team who's wearing the, for electronics, who's wearing the Cadillac hat and, and in their committees where they discuss electronic strategy and the progress that is made on those areas defines the needs of the Cadillac brand. And so that kind of matrix structure is something that is well established in GM and works very well for us. I uh, don't say this will be the case, you know, 50 years from now, if Cadillac is again uh, the number one luxury car company in the world, that may be a different story. Uh, but for now, I think this combination of dedicated focus and dedicated resources, but also leveraging and being well connected to the corporation is really bringing good results. Johan, uh, background. I, I might just on that oh, add, if you, don't, if you don't mind. Go ahead. In all the areas where it makes an, a, a, a more immediate impact, though, we have already the dedicated resources. For example, we have dedicated design. There's a whole design team that works just on Cadillac. They don't work on other products, um, interior, exterior. Uh, in the powertrain team, there again, uh, there are people who uh, are now looking very, very closely at the powertrain requirements for Cadillac. And uh, there are going to be a number of cases where we have unique Cadillac powertrains. And then in other cases where uh, it doesn't make sense, we will have shared powertrains, but um, there will be focus on delivering the power characteristics and noise vibration and harshness performance and the torque characteristics that are commensurate with a luxury brand. And if it means that we have to have additional technical sophistication, then we might add that where we can recover the cost from a customer with higher standards without now burdening the Chevrolet brand, for example, who might share 80% of that common componentry for that particular engine with the incremental cost for a sophistication that the customer doesn't need and doesn't want to pay for. So an uh, example might be that you end up with more sophisticated valve train management or additional noise vibration harshness work. Uh, you might have more sophisticated turbochargers, that kind of thing. But the core basic engine might be similar, right? So that's a perfect segue. No, it's actually a good segue, going back to your, your dedicated designers. Because it was around the year 2000, 2001, Cadillac embarked on this, what they call science and art kind of styling. Very hard-edged, very severe. Fast forward to today, it's not quite as severe, but still hard-edged. As you well know, in Asia, especially China, customers prefer more flowing lines. So what are your plans for evolving? Because we've seen 15, 16 years of evolution of art and science. How do you want to see this evolve from today? I think quite clearly <clears throat> you, uh, you have to continue to evolve designs because the environment within which you, you compete is constantly changing. New designs and new shapes are helping to also uh, bring around the need where people say, well, you know, I begin to be drawn towards a particular style. Nevertheless, art and science really is the Cadillac design language. But what we need to do is an evolution, not a revolution. 
If you do a revolution, it immediately dates everything else that's on the showroom floor, which is not a smart strategy. And so too, uh, I can tell you, we are working on absolutely fascinating new product right now. As we speak, there are 11 new Cadillac vehicle programs underway. And of course, each one of them is going to be a fascinating design. And uh, I think that we will continue to use design as an important differentiator for Cadillac and certain parts of the theme. Uh, so, for example, the vertical light orientation, it's part of our heritage. It's distinctly Cadillac. We want to retain that, but the design will evolve to be somewhat more emotional, somewhat more athletic. You've seen, no doubt, that uh, in terms of product technology, in terms of performance, uh, Cadillac really is pushing the boundaries now. We, we want to be a high-performance luxury car company. And uh, that kind of uh, inherent promise of uh, superior dynamics has got to be visible. And uh, that you do by showing the muscles of the car. So the wheels will really get pushed into the corners. The overhangs get even shorter. We'll really capitalize in our rear-wheel drive architecture to get the dash-to-axle ratio right. We probably will um, slightly soften that very pronounced wedge that we have today. So the belt line will go a bit lower. It means that the rear of the vehicle will be uh, somewhat um, less heavy set. So you introduce that sense of lightness and athleticism to the car. And uh, these are some of the stunning features that I wish I could share with you, but it's premature. So, uh, and we're getting down to the very end now. 11 models in the pipeline. Over what period of time will we see that? Uh, the next, next five years. Next five years. 11 products in the pipeline. That's a lot. Stunning portfolio. It means that we will take our coverage of the luxury segment from around 50% to almost 90% within five years. Well, Johan, this is uh, really exciting to hear how Cadillac's moving the needle. And I know those of us who have only seen uh, or had access to the sales numbers we're not that impressed when you start to get the story behind it. It's a pretty good story that you've got here. And with that, I want to thank you for coming on AutoLine this week and sharing some of the latest updates that are going on at Cadillac. I know we only just scratched the surface here. There's a lot more, but I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. John Stoll from the Wall Street Journal, Dave Sullivan from Auto Pacific. I want to thank you guys for being here, too. And, of course, I want to thank all of you out there that have been watching the show. And please join us again next week for another edition of AutoLine This Week.